Well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to the book of Romans, the book of Romans chapter 14. And while you're doing that, let me ask you a question. Have you ever disagreed with anyone? Well, most of you laugh, so most of you. So for those of you who have never disagreed with anybody, I want to know your secret. You know, disagreements are part of life. We disagree with people at work. Any of you ever disagree with your wife or your husband? Yeah? You ever disagree with your children, your parents, your siblings? We disagree with people in our family. We disagree at times with um, people at church. How do you handle it when you disagree with someone? Three years ago, there was a a dust-up between two of the newer, uh, very popular stars in country music, Zach Brown and Luke Bryan. Zach Brown, the, the Zach Brown band, was being interviewed for an article in a magazine, and he said, there's not a lot of the country format that I really enjoy listening to. There are songs out there on the radio right now that make me ashamed to be even in the same format as some other artists. And then he mentioned specifically Luke Bryan. And said his new, and this is what he said about his new song. And by the way, this new song for Luke Bryan did become a hit. But here's what he said. He said, I love Luke Bryan. And he's had some great songs. But this new song is the worst song I've ever heard. Now, what do you think happened? It hit the fan. Back and forth, back and forth. And other stars got involved with Twitter and, you know, and personal comments and so on. And then at the 2013 CMA Awards, Carrie Underwood uh, told them they needed to get over it. And they had nothing to fight about. And I love this quote. She said, you both make great records and you're both millionaires. (laughs) I thought that kind of put things in perspective a little bit. Because it's important in life that we know how to disagree with others. Some of you, your marriage would be so much better if you could learn how to disagree with one another about things without being disagreeable. It is amazing the things that start arguments that lead to destroyed relationships and families. So we need to know how to disagree with each other if we're going to have healthy relationships at home. We need to know how to disagree with each other if you're going to survive in the workplace. Do you know that the majority of terminations in the workplace are because of personality issues, people not knowing how to get along with other people, not knowing how to be team players, how to exist in a situation where everything doesn't go their way? Primary reason most people get fired. It's, it's not about performance. It's about attitude, even though you don't use that in your, in, in your evaluations. But it's about how you deal with people, how you relate to people, how you handle situations. That's what gets most people in trouble when it comes to their careers, how they struggle in dealing with people. Same thing is true in the church. It's important if you're going to have healthy relationships, if if a Sunday school class is going to grow, if a church is going to be on mission for Christ, that people know how to be together even when they disagree and do it the right way. So this morning I want us to look at some of the things God says in this 14th chapter of Romans about being in fellowship with one another when we don't agree on certain things and as you know we're looking at several passages where the bible talks about one another things we're to do to one another not do to one another the attitude we're to have about one another etc how we're to be in relationship together now romans 14 this this is a letter that the apostle paul wrote to the christians living in the city of rome to the church located in rome and this is it's the first century 
And you have to remember something. Rome was this massive metropolitan city, very diverse. In fact, a large percentage of the population was actually slaves. And those who were followers of Jesus Christ were a very small minority. See, we we sometimes forget. We're so used to historically in this country being in the majority, we, we forget that most of what the Bible talks about is written to people who were minorities. And... The fact that our culture is changing is is putting us in a position more similar to the people to whom the New Testament was actually written. So we can probably understand it a little bit better than we historically have. And so they were a minority population and they were viewed suspiciously. The church in Rome was not homogeneous. Many of the Christians were people of a Gentile background. Others were of a Jewish background. But what made them... The same is their faith in Christ. They've been saved, become believers in Christ. And when you think about those two groups within that church in Rome, they had very little in common except Jesus. Their backgrounds were different. Their, their, their experiences in life had been radically different. The, the Gentile believers had a pagan background. There wasn't much expected of them uh, in the past in terms of religion and, and so on. The Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians had a very strict religious background. And we know from historical documents that often they tried to out-Jew the Jews living in Jerusalem in terms of obedience to some of those rules. And they, they were used... They were used to living by rules. And so both groups understood that salvation was by the grace of God and by faith in Jesus Christ. But those of Jewish background, Jewish heritage who had become followers of Christ struggled to move beyond the rules of the past about what you could eat and could not eat and what was clean and unclean and what was appropriate and all of that. And, and because, yes, they believed in Jesus and they were saved and they were Christians, they still were clinging to some of those traditions of the past and, and even at times trying to shame the Gentile believers into doing what they had always done. And it created conflict in the church. Well, you, you can see how that would happen, can't you? That makes sense. You get that. And so that's the context in which Paul is writing this letter and to to help you so when we read it in a minute it'll it'll just make more sense to you these jewish christians these these believers who had a jewish background in rome and this church had become vegetarians not for health reasons but religious reasons because they still struggle with the fact that, you know, some things are clean and some things are unclean, even though the New Testament teaches that God created everything and it's good. And things are not clean and unclean when it comes to food. Jesus said it's not what you eat, what goes into you that defiles you, but what comes out of you, the kind of person you are, the kind of decisions you make, the kind of words you speak, the kind of lives you live. But they were still struggling with identifying their obedience and their godliness by how well they kept those rules of the past. And food was a big deal, especially meat. In the city of Rome, a lot of meat was offered to idols. It was sold on the open market. And and these Jewish believers would have a difficult time knowing if meat they were buying was kosher or not, if it had been sacrificed to idols or not. And they 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 were still hung up on that. Even though they were no longer Jews, they were Christians, and they were free from all that, they still struggled with it. 
And so they made the decision that the safest thing, so that we don't defile ourselves, we just won't eat any meat. So they were vegetarians just to avoid any defilement. It wasn't for health reasons. It was strictly for religious reasons. Now, the, the Gentile Christians, the, the Christians of Roman background, they didn't worry about any of that stuff. If that piece of meat at the market looked good, they'd buy it, cook it, eat it. Didn't bother them a bit. They didn't have the scruples that the believers of the Jewish background had. And so the, these people were coming at this from very different perspectives. And it was becoming an issue in the church. And so with that background, look at what he says in Romans chapter 1, or Romans chapter 14, right at the beginning at verse 1. And would you stand in honor of God's word as we look at these, two fir- these first two verses real quickly. Romans 14, beginning at verse 1. He says, now accept the one who is weak in faith, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Now, thank you, and you can be seated. Now, I could spend weeks unpacking everything in chapter 14 and on into chapter 15, which continues the the teaching. I mean, we could spend hours. Don't have that. So I'm just going to be able to hit some highlights this morning, bring out some principles for us in dealing with these disagreements we have as people of God on occasion over some of these kind of things. And so verses 1 and 2, what he's saying is you've got two groups. And this is the Apostle Paul. He says you've got those who are weak in faith and those who are strong in faith. It doesn't mean one believes in Jesus more than the other, but it's that the strong in faith were those who understood that, that you were not more holy because you did or did not eat certain foods. That we were in the new covenant, the new testament, not the old covenant. And those, those food laws of the past, those ceremonial laws of the past, do not apply to followers of Jesus Christ. And he's saying those who are weak in their faith are those who haven't reached that point yet. They still struggle with those rules of the past and and identifying themselves in terms of how holy they are by their keeping those rules rather than how righteous they are and how much joy in Jesus they express and whether or not the peace of God is all over their life. See, the truth is in religious history, it's always easier to measure quote-unquote righteousness by obedience to certain rules than it is to a lifestyle that is actually godly. So they were struggling. So he says, hey, the, the, there's two different groups, strong faith, weak faith. Now, it doesn't mean one loves Jesus more than the other. doesn't mean one is more dedicated than the other. It just means that one has experienced the freedom that we have in Christ, and the other still struggles with those things and are not totally free in Christ yet. And that's the context. So look at what he says in verse 3. He said, the one who eats, in other words, the, the Gentile Christian who would eat meat, is not to regard with contempt, look down on, the one who does not eat, the believer of a Jewish background who says, I'm just going to be a vegetarian. Don't look down on them. Don't look at them with contempt. And he continues in verse 3, and the one who does not eat, the, um, the Jewish believer who chooses not to eat meat, he says, is not to judge The one who eats, not to judge the Gentile Christian who does eat meat, for God has accepted him. And what he's telling us, and and it's still true today, is we have some tendencies in life. When when we disagree with people, we, we have some tendencies. And in this particular case, 
those of the weak faith, those of the Jewish background who believed in Jesus that still felt, you know, these laws and these rules matter and, and, and I can't quite get over that. And, 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 and he says what they were doing, their tendency is to judge those who don't follow those rules like them. Because if you really are godly, you're going to follow all these little rules I've got for how you're supposed to look and act and do if you're a Christian. So, so he said the tendency of those who, who try to follow all the rules is they like to judge everybody who doesn't believe in their rules or follow their rules. Now the tendency for those who are free, those who he here calls strong faith, in other words they've accepted the freedom in Christ and that these rules don't, don't apply because they're not really, these rules don't really get to what's holy and unholy, not really. Said so the problem with them is, 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 is they'll look, look at those others with contempt or, or uh, look down on and, and say, don't you get it? What's wrong with you? Why are you, why, why are you, what's wrong with you? And, and so one would look at the other and just kind of, don't you get it? What's, and the other would say, you're not holy. You, 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 you're not doing it right. And so one would judge the other, and the other would look with contempt on the other group. And they weren't able to say to one another, hey, you know what? We're at different places. We don't agree on this. They, they, could, they weren't at a place where they could see how their attitude toward one another was creating a problem for the church and for the kingdom of God. And so what Paul does... Is in the rest of this chapter and on over into chapter 15, he, he shares with them some guidance, some principles, some teaching to help them know how to deal with their, with their difference. Now, the differences were not limited to food. It was about holidays. When you read chapter 14, uh, some of these Jewish believers, the, the weak faith that he calls them, as he calls them here, uh, they felt certain days are more holy than other days. The Gentile believers said, huh, every day is the same. One day is not more holy than the other. You know, Saturday is just as holy as Sunday because it's all the day the Lord has made. No, one day's, and, and, and that was an issue. Drinking wine was an issue. And, and there were probably others, but those are the three that are mentioned in this chapter. And so Paul says, here's how you handle it. Now, I, I need to give you a couple of qualifiers real quickly. In this chapter, he's not talking about how do you handle it when, when a Christian is guilty of some sin. This is not talking about what do, you, what do you do when one Christian steals from another. This is not talking about what do, what do you do when one Christian has an affair with another Christian's spouse. He's not talking about how do you deal with sin in the church. There's other passages in the New Testament that deal with that issue. That's not this chapter. Okay? So this is not applying to those kind of issues. This chapter, another qualifier, is not talking about what, what I'm going to call essential doctrine, essential truth, the, the core of the gospel, the, the, the burial sinlessness, sinless life, the, the atoning death and, and, and the literal resurrection and the literal ascension and the literal second coming of Jesus. It's not dealing with core doctrinal issues that Jesus is the way of salvation and the only way of salvation. It's, it's, not, dealing with the, it's not dealing with those core biblical doctrines on which there can be no compromise. It's not dealing with those kind of issues. He's dealing with other 
kind of issues, what, I, what I'm going to call non-essentials. And by the way, did you know that based on research, most conflict among Christians and most conflict within churches over non-essentials, in fact, only 2% of church splits, church conflict, listen to this, only 2% is because of core doctrinal issues. 98% is over personal stuff, personality, traditions, rules, other kind of stuff. Only 2% of all church conflict has to, do, has to do with core biblical truth, core biblical doctrine. 98% over other. And, and, and I'm going to say most of the conflict that starts in marriage is over stuff like this as well. Not the big stuff. Big stuff usually comes later because we haven't handled properly the smaller stuff, the, the non-essential stuff. And the relationship begins to deteriorate. So that's the qualifier. Now, just put in perspective, how, how many of you were in church in the 1970s? Wave at me. That's when I first became a believer, okay? I was a teenager. Graduated high school in 1976. I got saved when I was a teenager, baptized when I was a sophomore in high school, called to preach when I was a junior in high school. And uh, so the 1970s, I'm a product of the 70s, so to speak. That's my, you know, that's my youth years, my teen years, my college years. And when I first started going to church, do you know what the big issue people were debating then? Whether or not it was right for a Christian to have long hair. Y'all remember that? Come on, come on. Y'all remember that? Some of y'all still struggle with that, don't you? <laughs> That was the issue in the 1970s, whether or not a Christian, you weren't godly if you had long hair. Well, folks, when I started preaching, I was the hippie preacher. My hair was down here and it curled up and I wore a leather string with a wooden cross and I preached Jesus and people got saved. But that was the issue back then. That's me. Others dis- But you, you remember those days? And then we move on to the 1980s and the 1990s, and guess what some of the issues were then? If a guy has, a, has, a, has an earring, is he saved or not? Is he godly if he's wearing an earring? Then I, I could go on with other examples, but, but you get the point, right? Those were the things, I mean, I can remember being in meetings, different, different places, even some many here, and, and, and there's discussions about those kind of issues. Our version, what they were dealing with in the church in Rome that Paul's talking about in, in this chapter. Um, a little over a year ago, I got a letter. I get letters occasionally. I got a letter a little over a year ago from a man that I know, not a member of our church, a member of another Baptist church in this area, watches his own television. He loves Jesus. He's a dedicated Christian. He's a good guy. I know him. I'll never tell you who he is. Great guy. But he, he wrote me a letter criticizing me because I didn't always wear a suit and tie. And told me I'd be a better preacher if I wore a suit and tie all the time, every time I preach. By the way, he also included a tie that he thought I ought to wear that would look good with my suits. Well, not only do he and I disagree over whether or not you have to always wear a suit and tie if you're going to be a dedicated Christian and your preaching is going to be the most powerful. Uh, we have different tastes in what looks good, too. I never wore that tie because I thought it was ugly. But that's all right. If he thinks it's beautiful and looks good, praise Jesus. That's good. We're all different, right? That's okay. 
Nothing wrong with that. That's all right. But you see, most of the disagreements we have in life and most of the disagreements among Jesus' people and in churches and Sunday school classes are over these kind of things. It's the same thing that was happening in Romans 14. Not core doctrine. Not sin in someone's life. These kind of personal preference things, cultural things, tradition things. Donald Gray Barnhouse, some of you have heard of him. He was a Presbyterian preacher. For 30 years, pastored a significant Presbyterian church in Philadelphia. Um, died in 1960. Wrote a lot of books, a lot of commentaries. I have a few of his books in my, in my study. Just a you know, great preacher of the gospel. I've even listened to some of his sermons before uh, uh, on the Internet. But in, 19, in 1928, this is a true story, he was speaking at a conference with about 200 people. And during a break, two women approached him, and, and they, they were upset because some of the younger ladies in the crowd um, were not wearing stockings. You know, pantyhose. And it's 1928, and they were upset because not all, some of these young women weren't wearing pantyhose. They weren't wearing stockings. And they, they, wanted, him to, uh, they, they wanted him to rebuke those young women who weren't wearing stockings. You need to wear stockings. So Dr. Barnhouse looked at them, and he, and he said, <laughs> he said, uh, the Virgin Mary never wore stockings. Man, I would never be smart enough to think of that. (laughs) I said, really? He said, yeah, they didn't have them back then. I won't bore you with all the history, but, you know, pantyhose stockings first appeared on the set. They were were worn by prostitutes. Did y'all know that? Yeah, in the 1500s in Italy, and then later they became acceptable for everybody. But you see, those things, they change over the seasons, right? We may have preferences and things we like and we like better than other things and all of that. But, but the problem is when, you, when we begin to elevate those to the status of biblical teaching, that's when we go astray. When, when we begin using those to evaluate the authenticity and, and the godliness and, 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 and the Christ-likeness of other people, that's when we go astray. So how do we deal with these issues? Well, I want to give you some principles from this chapter, okay? The first one is is learn to accept each other, even when when we disagree over these non-essentials. Just learn to accept each other. Chapter 14, verse 1. Accept the one who is weak in faith. Look at chapter 15, verse 7. Chapter 15, verse 7. And therefore accept one another so it's mutual. The Greek word translated accept here literally means to pull someone toward yourself. Receive them, welcome them, befriend them, fellowship with them. Don't don't be like the person represented in this poem. And I'm not great at poetry, so I'm going to give it my best shot. But here's this poem I came across. It says, believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else. Confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink, but what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do. Then and only then will I fellowship with you. (laughs) 
He's saying, don't be like that. Accept, pull to you. Befriend, fellowship people with whom you disagree over these non-essential issues. Number two, stop arguing about it. Stop arguing about it. Chapter 14, verse 1, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. That phrase in the original Greek is very difficult to translate. In fact, most commentators will tell you it's really hard to understand exactly what he means by that last phrase. And so you'll see some real variance in translations. As I said, the New American Standard, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion. The NIV, without quarreling over disputable things. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, don't argue about doubtful issues. As best I can tell, here's what the idea seems to be. And I did spend some time, I went back to the original Greek New Testament and looked at each of those words and how they're translated and, 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 and their meaning throughout time and tried to, God, what are you really saying? And here's the best sense I can make of it. And, and this is what most commentators would say too. The idea is, is to, to not separate, because one of the words has that idea to it. Don't separate, don't part company, don't divide, don't fall out over these questionable issues. The second word has to do with questionable issues, doubtful issues. In other words, he's saying stick together, don't make these minor things major, and therefore separate. And so that's why I said the first point is accept one another. The second point is stop arguing about the things that are non-essential. Now I'm, listen, I'm going to stand firm on Jesus as the way and the only way to heaven. I'm going to stand firm on the authority and veracity of the Word of God. I'm going to stand firm on God as the Creator. There's a literal heaven, a literal hell, and a literal second coming. I'm going to stand firm on the core essentials of the gospel. But some of these other things that we sometimes want to really focus so much energy on, he says stop arguing about them. Stop quarreling about them. Number three, he says, stop criticizing and judging each other over these things. Verses three and four. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who doesn't. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats because God has accepted him. God's accepted both of them. They love Jesus, so who are you to judge them? They're his, accountable to God. Look at chapter 14, verse 10. But you, why, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. They're accountable to God, not you. So stop judging one another. Stop criticizing one another is the idea. Here's number four. Learn to build each other up instead of tearing each other down, even when you disagree over these kind of non-essential issues. Look in chapter 14 again at verse 13. He says, therefore, do what? Let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in our brother's way. Now, verse 15, it is because if, if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now, let me help you understand those verses. Because sometimes people have used those verses to always say to those who are free, you always have to follow the rules of those who are not free. And that's not what he's saying. Because if that were true, everybody in the church of Rome would have stopped eating meat and all of them become vegetarians and that didn't happen. 
If that were true, we'd all go down to the lowest common denominator, and ladies, every one of you would be wearing dresses, never pants, because there are some Christians who believe it's a sin for a woman to ever wear anything but a dress. Is that not true? So that's not the point he's making. It's not somebody gets mad or they get frustrated or they get offended. That's not the issue. That's a misinterpretation of this text. The point he's addressing is, and often it causes someone to fall in their faith, to be destroyed, he says in the other verse, so that there's, they, they, they fall from Christ, they fall into sin. You, you do things that manipulates and pushes people into doing things that violate their conscience. To sin. So that's why accepting, pulling one another in and not arguing over these things and not judging and criticizing, you allow people to live out of the convictions they have so long as they're not violating the Scripture on, on the big issues. But when we make these little issues the key things, we push people into, in, into behavior that is ungodly. We push people into sin. We push people into spiritual failure. And he says, instead of doing that, we need to build one another up. Do, we, we, we need, he says, to, to edify one another. Look at um, verse 19. So then we ought to pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Rather than tearing each other down over these things, we need to be encouraging each other in our faith. So that's one of the principles we need to follow. Number five, be considerate of each other. Be considerate of each other. Look at chapter 14, verse 19 again. He, he says, pursue peace. Well, that means you're going to be considerate of people that you don't agree with on some of these non-essential issues. Pursue peace. Look at verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Don't argue over these things and, and hurt the church, hurt the work of God. Chapter 15, verse 2, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. Try to, try to get along with one another and build each other up. Be nice to each other, courteous, considerate. Number six, here's the sixth lesson principle. Live, listen, live for the Lord according to the conviction that he places in your heart. Now, Paul very clearly here says that some... For them, they struggled with food, and every time they, they ate this meat, they felt guilty. He said, now that's, you know, that means they haven't come to the place of a full understanding of, of the freedom they have in Christ. But, hey, that's okay. They still love Jesus, and they're dedicated to Jesus. They struggle with it. Then leave them alone. Let, let, you know, let them be vegetarians. Nothing wrong with them being vegetarians, just like there's nothing wrong with you eating meat. Just let them be. Let them be. Because he tells us, he tells us in verses 5 and following, look at it, chapter 14, verse 5. He said, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind, your own conviction. He who observes the day, who says this one day is more holy than another, he, he observes it for the Lord. And the one, the one who eats meat, <laughs> he's, he's doing it for the Lord. He's living for the Lord. He gives thanks to the Lord. Whatever you do, you're, in the next verse, you're li- you don't live for yourself. You're living for the Lord. Don't make everybody else have to live for the Lord exactly the way you do. You get the point? 
You get the point. We could go on, but we don't have time to look at all the verses where he talks. But that live, live for the Lord. Because living in, in keeping with the convictions you have in terms of your own life, not forcing it on everybody else, but in terms of your own life, then, then you're going to stand before God. And, and if you do things that, you, that for you, that for you are sinful, then that's a problem. But it's, but it's for you. He, um, he talks about that a lot at the end of uh, chapter 14. Look at uh, verse 22. He said, the faith which you have, what, whatever, wherever you are at, weak, strong, whatever, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Do, live out of your See, one of my convictions, and this is not a bit, you know, the Bible condemns drunkenness. But in my personal life, I don't, I don't drink any alcohol. Never will. And I'm in social settings all the time where there's social drinking. I will never drink in those settings because, well, one, I have a family history of alcoholism, so I'd be crazy to. And it's just not important enough to me to damage my, my witness with somebody. So that's me. But, but for me to stand here and say that anyone who drinks a glass of wine at home is sinning, I'd be unbiblical in saying that. Because the Bible doesn't say that. But it does very clearly speak about drunkenness. But that's a conviction for me. And so if, if I, under social pressure, were to violate that conviction, then that would be a problem for me. might not be a problem for you, but it would be a problem for me. So live under the lordship of Christ. Obey what he puts on your heart to do for you. But don't go the next step and say what he puts on my heart and these non-essential issues everybody has to do. That's when we go further than scripture goes. And here's the last one. Live, Live for a higher purpose than yourself and what you like. Live for the kingdom of God. Chapter 14, verse 17. He said, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He said, if you really want to know what the kingdom of God is about, it's not about all these non-essentials that we're fighting about. He said, if that's where you're at, that's not the kingdom of God kind of stuff. The kingdom of God kind of stuff is, is genuine righteousness, which means walking in obedience to the will of Christ for someone's life. Walking in obedience to the clear commandments of Scripture when it comes to morality and ethics. A faith that trusts no matter what and doesn't give up and walk away from Jesus. Peace and, and joy. When, when, you, when you see some Christians and they always look like they're you know, depressed or they always look like they're mad, something's wrong. Said so The kingdom of God is about things bigger than all this stuff that so often we want to make the most important stuff. It's about a higher purpose. Transform lives. People being saved and going to heaven. Don't make the kingdom of God about the small stuff. Terry Lynn Barton was a, a firefighter with the for, Forest Service in Colorado. And in 2002, she confessed to, to having intentionally set a fire. And then there's different speculation about why. I won't get into all that. But she, she confessed to it. She set a fire, and it became the largest, the biggest wildfire in the state of Colorado's history. It destroyed 138,000 acres. Destroyed 133 homes. 
estimated that it cost people $30 million. She served a few years in prison. Today she's on parole and she owes millions in restitution. In addition to all the damage she did, pain she created, do do you know what bothered people? You know what bothered people? What bothered people was that she was a firefighter for the Forest Service who was supposed to put out fires, and instead she started one. And sometimes the world looks at us, The people where you work look at you and look at us. People sitting near you at the ball games and in the parks, they they look at us. And they hear how we talk about one another. And how we criticize one another and how we judge one another. Not over big things, but these little things. And they just shake their heads. And say, really? And we wonder why they don't want to be part of us? When Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples by how you love one another, this is the kind of stuff he was in part talking about. So what is the Holy Spirit teaching you today? And are you listening? Are you quick to believe something because it suits your pre-existing stereotype or opinion? We had some humorous email exchanges this week with some staff and members. There's a website. It's all satire. It's all made up. None of it's true. It's just satires. They they, they wrote a false story, satire, about Elevation Church having a, what's one of those, you know, water slides? Having a water slide in their church that empty people into the, into the baptistry. And and they just, they just rush people through it. Didn't know what they were doing. Shoot, down the water slide. What's so funny is some people thought it was true. Because if you are predisposed to think something about somebody, guess what? You get the point? And again I ask, what is Jesus saying to you? And are you listening? By the way, you may not know it. And this is the last thing we'll have the invitation. But uh, this morning, when it was too late to, to, to change shirts, my top button broke. So I had a decision to make. I happened to have a latch pin. So there's a latch pin back here. You can't see it, but it's back there. Or at least I hope you can't see it. But it's back there. Now let me ask you. If I had decided not to use a latch pin and just said, well, <laughs> it's too late to do anything about it. I'm just going to leave the shirt on button in no time. Would that have made this less of a sermon from the Word of God? And again I ask, what is Jesus saying to you? And are you hearing him?
And even more importantly, are you going to obey him?